2: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linnarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy.
3: Hi, Thea. How are you doing?
2: All right, thank you. Um, well, except the summer has gone away again and one of the few, only, basically, only signs that it was ever here is an abundance of courgettes and broad beans in the bottom drawer of my fridge where they're looking a bit sorry for themselves. Um which reminds me that it's a while since we've had an allotment update from you. I
3: have to say, this causes me great pain and jealousy because my broad beans are a total disaster. I do not have an abundance <laughs> of broad beans or even courgettes. Everyone can grow courgettes. This is famous. Everyone knows this that they're easy. But this year, even even my courgettes haven't worked.
2: Well, Lucy, I I can't claim to have grown courgettes. Oh, I thought broad you meant beans. ones. You-
3: Drone.
2: oh hell no a, a, oh, a gross, kind farmer, a kind so farmer very up the road jealous <laughs> <did>. <laughs> no, no I once I once grew broad beans and they got to be about um well more than a meter high which seemed quite tall to me yeah um and then I went away for three days and came back and they'd been completely decimated by uh no by snails
3: oh really yeah it's just yeah I, I, uh, I've got I've got high hopes, literally, for my sweet corn. Put it that way.
2: Okay. Well, that comes later uh, in the, in the season, doesn't it? So, do you do you read books about growing things, or do you tend to wing it?
3: Um, no, I, I'd sort of do both, really. I mean, I read lots and lots of books just about it because it's interesting, and also you want tips and things. And then and then I also make it up when I get there, and it's so that's partly why I find it so fascinating too, because it's so local and particular. Ah. And even if you know exactly what your soil is and what grows where and what you had the year before and what you're supposed to do, something will change in the local conditions. You know, so last year, there were I, I basically, there were basically hardly any slugs and snails. Everything's thrived, yeah. but there was tons of um, black fly and white fly and stuff like that. And this yeah. year I went up and they had just, they basically put napkins round their necks <laughs> and really, really gone for it this year. <laughs> Um, so I read books about it for for information and for pleasure, but uh, practically you've just got to sort of, you know, go there and look at what's worked and what hasn't because the only constant I can think of is that not everything will work.
2: Yep, yep, the mystery, the mysteries of the allotment. Um, well, that concludes this week's gardening segment. Um, coming up on the rest of the show the Uruguayan novelist Mario Livrero died in 2004, leaving behind him a final work of fiction entitled The Luminous Novel, a strange, ironic experiment in autofiction, which our reviewer Michael Kerrigan says lurches on its awkward, clumsy way with all the grace of a circus bear negotiating a tightrope. And yet it grips the imagination in ways we cannot pin down or ignore, Michael Kerrigan will guide us through Livrero's improbably enthralling thicket of mundane incidentals, and miscellaneous items from this week's TLS, including a dazzling history of Sicily, the demise of local journalism, and bald philosophy, whatever that is. But first, Lucy,
3: over to you. Yes, well, if you are familiar with the lovely hills of Camberwell, Wimbledon's green and impurpled hills, or the idea of angels in a tree on Peckham Rye, then you're either an extremely committed South Londoner or perhaps a fan of William Blake, the visionary who saw wonders everywhere and communicated them urgently in art and poetry. This week, we are looking at a book by John Higgs with the modest title, William Blake versus the world. Nick Groom, who's a professor of literature and English at the University of Macau, wrote about it for us, and we're delighted he's here to talk to us today. Nick, hello, and thanks for joining us.
4: It's a pleasure, Lucy. How are you?
3: All right, thank you. Uh, and looking forward to, to, well, actually, the first question I wanted to ask, which is a silly question, looking forward to finding out if the title is William Blake versus the world, who won?
4: <laughs> well, I think that John Hingett's answer is that the jury is still out. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, this, this has been going on for over 250 years now um, and um, finally I think the world is beginning to catch up uh, with William Blake um, but there's still a lot of unresolved business.
3: Let's start with trying to talk about kind of what he was because in your piece you say that a friend um, who, that Blake made later on in life said his creativity confounded simple categories. Can you
4: kind of unpack that for us a little bit, please? Yes. Well, I think that William Blake clearly impressed uh, many people he met um, at a very profound level. And this is partly because and I think this is an important thing to say from the outset, from the very beginning, is that he lived in a different world. And he offers us glimpses of that. He was, a, uh, he was fantastic with words. He was uh, uh, amazing uh, with, his, uh, with his artwork. And so we get glimpses of this alternative, of this Blakean vision. And that certainly impressed um, his contemporaries. It's continued to impress people um, to this day. And I think one of the important things is, is that we are gradually, I think as literary critics, as art critics, coming to terms with the fact that many people see the world differently. There isn't some universal human perception of the world. And Blake is an extreme example of this. Somebody who sees experiences and then communicates the world in a completely um, unique and individual and idiosyncratic way. Um, And that's what I think really impressed and captivated Uh, both his contemporaries and, as I say, readers and uh, people who've who've looked at his art and studied it ever since.
3: But it also, didn't it? Because some people, I think, probably thought that he was uh, delusional or, you know, madman and, you know, there was the other side of it. Do you think it's a problem, this category confusion, in terms of how he's been perceived?
4: Um, Yes, it is. Um, And I think certainly it is in his time. He tended to be dismissed um, as being mad, being an unfortunate lunatic, as he was one that's described, public reviews of his work uh, tended to be generally dismissive, and there's a sort of sense that Blake's uniqueness uh, was something that was so beyond uh, the beaten track, so uh, out of the experience um, of his contemporaries um, that it did seem uh, to, be, to be quite alien. Um, and yet the notion of artistic genius stroke madness is something that's been around for, for centuries, Everyone knows the lines from Shakespeare, the poet, the lover, and the lunatic of a likeness all compact. Um, so there's that sort of sense of creativity, uh, imaginative, uh, vibrancy, um, and vision uh, can veer very close to the delusional, to the deluded, or to, to the mad.
2: And how, how long after his death then did people start to... Uh, engage with his work seriously, you know, to take it as you said at, at face value. And uh, what did they find first? You, who started the, the reappraisal?
4: Well, he certainly did have his um, his enthusiasts, um, people like uh, Henry Crab Robinson, the uh, the uh, diarist. He befriended Blake about a year and a half before before Blake's death, and, and he was clearly entranced uh, by him. And so th- there was a there was a core um, of early Blake um, enthusiasts. But then at the same time, you have this, you know, voluminous body of material from the early poems um, and sketches through uh, to the great illuminated books of his his later years. For example, his early biographer, Alexander Giltris, was absolutely flummoxed uh, when it came to the later work um, and sort of famously tried to grapple with them and was, you know, simply incapable of of actually making sense. Um, making sense of it, and
3: struck me that one of the amazing things about him wasn't that he was just a fantastic dreamer, was he? he was also a radical, firmly embedded in in the realities of the, the world he saw around him, which was often filled with poverty and deprivation. I had a look at a couple of the a couple of the chimney sweeper poems, are completely straightforward and completely sort of heartbreaking. You know about these about the children being sent up the chimneys. He uh, he, he was a radical realist as well, wasn't he?
4: He was. Um, he he was he was unflinching in his portrayal of late eighteenth-century poverty and of um, London life, particularly in the plight that children found themselves. Um, he himself lived in unbelievably humble circumstances. Uh, to mention Crab Robinson again, um, he described um, Blake's poverty as living in squalid filth. You know, people read the Songs of Innocence and they are deceptively simple and straightforward, but actually they are very heartbreaking um, tales and vignettes of the, the social conditions um, of the time. The poem London, for example. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's an it's a incredibly powerful attack on, you know, child prostitution, um, sexually transmitted uh, in, in, in infections, these sort of social hypocrisy. Um, of the period. Um, so that stuff is there in Blake uh, from the very outset, and it really becomes one of the cornerstones of uh, his own um, mythology, this mythmaking uh, that he engages in.
3: It's like it's like Oliver Twist or something, except he does it in about 12 lines. <laughs> 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 Dickens well, takes it, a bit longer. <laughs> it,
4: it, it is like Oliver Twist. I mean, um, I love Dickens, but um, what one doesn't, I mean, Dickens has a uh, threads of humour um, and I don't think that you really get that with Blake. Blake was angry um, or rather passionate, uh, perhaps would be a better term. I mean he, he, he does seem to have been uh, a man who was uh, driven and indeed um, overwhelmed by, the, by these emotions, by this, this sort of sense of injustice um, and an attempt to try to reimagine uh, the world um, and offer it um, as an
3: alternative. This same radicalism, which included also writing about the fall of kings and organised religion, right at the height of the French Revolution when Europe was in a panic anyway, that could be dangerous to him, couldn't it, the, the radicalism?
4: Oh, it could be extremely dangerous. And, of course, um, he got into a bit of a, uh, an issue uh, with a, with a soldier, uh, was charged with sedition, um, and uh, that could have had very, very serious consequences. But, you know, Blake is somebody who... You know, he does have this sense of what is right, and he's not going to um, stand by and uh, be bullied by uh, by the authorities or by authoritarian figures.
2: And that's that's true on a smaller scale as well, isn't it? He, I mean, he had a general dislike of authority, didn't he? He sort of fell out with, well, I mean, with lots of people, I think, but in particular, there was a falling out with uh, the Royal Academy, and then he fell out with his patron too. So, I mean, both of these things must have had pretty disastrous consequences for his. Uh, his career prospects, you would think, at least in the short term.
4: Yes, I mean, he was clearly somebody who didn't suffer fools gladly. Um, and his definition of a fool was, was very much William Blake's definition um, of, a, of a fool. So he had, he had very high and personal principles. And of course, that's one of the things that has, has attracted generations of free thinkers, radicals, um, and even libertarians uh, to him. And so he has become the touchstone of, of an alternative um, and, and radical um, English artistic tradition. If
3: we're turning to the book, uh, John Higgs, you say, he gives us vertiginously ahistorical
4: perspectives.
3: Um, can you talk us through some of these?
4: Yes, well, th- th- this, is one, this is one of the things that um, I was in two minds about when I actually um, read the book uh, because there has been a tendency, a growing tendency over the past few years to use our modern theories of mind to uh, analyse uh, art and poetry. Um, and there've been some very good examples of this, such as Roderick Tweedy's um, work, specifically on Blake. John Higgs, I think, takes this a step further. He's, he's certainly inspired by, uh, by Tweedy, uh, but he talks about the entropic brain, the default mode network of, um, yeah, that's a sort of neuroscientific way of mapping, mapping the brain, um, hemispheric lateralization. So of the whole uh, panoply um, of neuroscientific models, Uh, that John Higgs is using to try to get inside Blake's um, thinking and more importantly his imagination and the way that he saw things. This this sense that he did literally see them and and how is that possible, how is it possible for the brain to to produce, to to make these images with such um, hyperreal clarity. Um, And so the the more I read this, I mean Although the fact that it's you know is way beyond people in the humanities to be uh, to be thinking about neuroscience and also um, uh, theoretical physics, he, he goes on to talk about sort of quantum theory. Nevertheless, um, I think in this book it works as a way of beginning to bring Blake into sharper focus, uh, suggesting that you know at the at, at the boundaries of neuroscience there are theories um, and sort of indeed ex- experiments which seem to open up ways of thinking about the mind and the self and consciousness and always the imagination uh, that Blake has already expressed. And so in, 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 in the end, I actually sort of found it, um, if not persuasive, incredibly um, tantalizing and suggestive. Um, and certainly it made me think about Blake Um, in a very fresh way. And I'd I'd certainly like... um like to be able to share that with the readers
3: because that's what I was wondering. I was wondering if it, if it, if it was convincing. Is it? Does it help to think about? I mean, it sounds as though it does. But, I mean, being a bit flippant, but he's, he he mentions Blake and Einstein and Paul McCartney and Obi wan Kenobi. All I mean, presumably not all of that lands, does it? Or maybe
4: it does. No, um, I think that's I think the Einstein stuff um, lands. I mean, what little I <laughs> don't know about Einstein, he certainly uh, persuaded me of that. I think that the the popular cultural references to Uh, to the Beatles, to Bowie, to to Star Wars, Um, I don't think they really work. Not least because Blake himself is somebody who is reluctant to have those very culture-specific references in his work. He's always mythologizing um, them. But I think that the bigger ideas uh, really do work. I think previously I'd been reluctant to use 21st century uh, medical and uh, neuroscientific thinking as a way of approaching uh, writers and artists of the past. I prefer to actually look at theories of the mind from the late 18th and early 19th centuries and see how Blake might have fitted into um, that um, sort of early ways of of thinking about consciousness or into um, the the sort of radical theology uh, that he he flirted with. Um, But I think that Higgs is, um, it's intriguing enough to uh, to, to, to merit further investigation. I think certainly when he talks about uh, the, the London artist um, Claire Dudney, uh, which is described, described as a hyper-fantastic artist, uh, that's fantastic PH, um, as a, a, an artist who's able to, as she puts it, um, you know, imagine the self as a network of relationships in flux, which is fragmented, uncertain, and complex, and is able really to, uh, to see and experience um, and visualize uh, very powerfully um, imaginative scenes. Uh, that 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 certainly seemed to me um, to be plausible as a way of connecting with Blake. And um, i visited uh, Claire Duden's website and um, and been um, investigating her work further. And I think that I think that John Higgs is onto something uh, with uh, with uh, with that. Certainly,
2: I suppose. I mean, whether whether or not I mean all of those cultural references um, come off they are international in range or pretty international in range, aren't they? And um, as Lucy said in her introduction, William Blake versus the world isn't exactly uh, a modest uh, title in its reach. So it's <laughs> the world part that I'm, I'm wondering about here. How international is Blake now? Is he, is he, is he still very much a kind of a, a British or even English phenomenon? Or, or does he have a rich life uh, beyond these shores?
4: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I think that John Higgs is going some way towards addressing that uh, by using uh, these contemporary theories um, of the mind and showing uh, that this is a Blake very much for the 2020s and for the 2030s. Um, so by bringing him uh, very much um, into, the, into the modern world, which of course is a, is a far more cosmopolitan world than, than Blake himself um, lived in, is one way of of thinking about global Blake. But this isn't, in fact, the first book that John Higgs has written um, about Blake. Um, A couple of years ago, he published a very short, uh, very readable book called William Blake Now, Why He Matters More Than Ever. And in that, um, he has a chapter um, on a Blake video game, on on a computer game. Um, And so in that sense, you know, Blake has gone into um, a version of popular culture which is properly global. I think this 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 game was marketed in Japan.
3: What what do you do in the game? I now immediately want to play it. <laughs>
4: I'm afraid I don't play computer games, oh. so I just I, I just read them. I'm
3: the going to go. I'm going to go. You have to find out and report back, Lucy. I wonder if you kind of fire the angels out of the tree. No, that would be that too... That wouldn't be in um, keeping with Blake's feeling. No, that wouldn't be good. You could blast people's blast people's mind-forged <laughs> manacles off yes. and then everyone would be free.
4: <laughs> I, I don't think that the, the depth of Blake analysis in the game would, would probably, <laughs> you know merit much um, uh, um, investigation, but I think that it's, it's the fact that Blake is, is a springboard and, and offers um, this sort of fantastic range of materials of resources that are connected in multifarious ways um, through his, I mean for want of a better term, divinities such as your reason, um, and loss and so forth, um, that they are these sort of colossal entities that engage in these sort of cosmic struggles uh, which um, are both the, the you know, gigantic mythological level, and it also have a personal relevance. Um, and they're focused on um, London and on England and on on, on the human body um, and so forth. So they they offer layers and layers and layers of possibility, wh- whether it's for um, other uh, other writers and artists to delve, or indeed for uh, for, for games designers to plunder.
3: So I wonder. Um, finally, um, I'm afraid because we could I get we could. Talk about Blake for a long time, couldn't we? But you say at the end of your piece, um, are we catching up with Blake or or have we not caught up with him yet? What do you think?
4: Well, I think that John Higgs's book um, has has made a a step in the right direction. Um, And it's a very useful reminder of Blake within this alternative English tradition. Um, I mean, John Higgs sort of frequently uh, references artists such as Alan Moore um, indeed, Alan Moore turns up in, in this, you know, the, the graphic novelist um, and indeed novelist um, and artist Alan Moore, um, he references uh, the Illuminatus um, trilogy um, as well as the the Diggers and the Levellers of the seventeenth century. So there is that sort of sense of this radical uh, tradition. It has been recognised um, since perhaps at least the time of of, um, of Crystal Hill, but uh, we need to be keep being reminded of it and. It needs to be demonstrated that it is um, a very topical and relevant aspect of our identity um, and particularly a way in which we can mobilize culture to actually give us, uh, provide us what we need. And that really is where John Higgs is heading at the end of this book. Um, He really wants to empower the imagination. Uh, He wants to use Blake as a template uh, for a much more adventurous way of reimagining and re-enchanting uh the world um he's not alone in that um there are other writers and artists who have been moving towards this but you know what really this is about is explaining the role and the value of literature and art at this particular juncture at a time of um, climate change environmental collapse um, not to mention Brexit um, and, the, and the pandemic. What can art offer us? And it can offer us um, an alternative and we can actually participate in that as not only thinking and feeling, but of beings ourselves.
3: That's a wonderful challenge for us to, to rise to. Um... After this, we all have to go out and re-enchant the world. <laughs>
4: it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly ambitious. Yeah, something uh, to aim I, for. But, I mean, really. But, 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 I, but I, think, I think that we do need to be reminded um, of the, uh, the value of the arts.
2: Yes. I suppose that's the thing. that The, the subtitle of John Higgs' previous book is is Why uh, William Blake Matters Now More Than Ever. But I suppose you, we re, we can rewrite that subtitle very easily to Why the Arts Matter Now More Than Ever when they're so challenged by Cuts and- uh, abso- abso- Absolutely,
4: oh. but B- Blake, you know, would, would have found the challenges that face us in the 21st century. He, he would have been incandescent with rage, mm. but that would have inspired him. And he would be producing um, literature and, um, and and visual arts uh, to try to show what roots there might be, how we can think and imagine our ways out, how, many, how we can imagine a future, uh, really, which uh, uh, which is brighter than the apocalyptic uh, prognostications that we uh, we face, you know, on an almost daily basis.
3: We were going to end on a high note, but now, now we're going <laughs> to end on apocalyptic. <laughs> <Almost>. <laughs> <laughs> we nearly got there. No, but thank you very much. Blake is apocalyptic. He is, isn't he? Apocalyptic, but also uplifting. Think about the fires as being pure. <laughs>
2: Here's to William Blake then.
3: Okay, Nick Groove, many thanks for talking to us. Thank you.
2: to come on the show a few items of note from this week's TLS and the improbably enthralling fiction of Mario Livrero. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free, wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. You may even have spotted the odd bonus episode we've added selected long reads from the paper for you to enjoy. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer. Exclusive, that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS, and that's print and digital. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer
0: a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times
2: Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we wade into that thicket of mundane incidentals, Lucy, I believe you have a piece you want to tell us about.
3: Yeah, a few pieces, actually. Um, kind of eclectic selection of um, of subjects. There was one a piece, um, uh, the the Stanfurst calls it a jocular but damning account of the decline of local newspapers. And it's a funny mix of, of someone who's worked in it. The book is by a guy called Roger Littolis. Um, and he's been working in local newspapers um, for many years, and it's a it's a funny account of, uh, as it says, you know, the demise of a whole industry or of something that used to be at the heart of a community. Is this the um, brilliantly titled Panic as Man Burns? Cronko? Yes, and and it's got also. I just have to say, the picture that goes with it has got these brilliant, you know, the boards that have got the headlines on. Yeah, one of them is uh, one of them is in a, a, the Argus. The headline is "UKIP candidate hit by bog roll." <laughs> uh, the other one in the Hammond High, which is London paper, isn't it? Is Francis Bacon's ghost lurking in pub?
5: Yes, brilliant. I, I mean it probably.
3: Is. It <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. I mean, and that stuff is brilliant and funny. But it's not just that stuff, of course. The and uh, the guy who wrote it said he enjoyed sort of being the underdog and sticking up for the underdog and lo- looking for the little stories that might, you know, um, reveal. Y- you know bigger sort of truths or, or problems because so really overall interesting. it's not a
2: happy it's I mean it's not a happy story overall is it it's, well, it's not demise, at all as you said but yeah it really is yeah these kind the, the vacuum that has that has been
3: created I yes and I think it's been the demise is because of a number of a number of things uh the internet I've heard of it yeah <laughs> well it's not uh it's not friendly to local journalism uh, and yes, and, and social media has, as you say, this has come in to fill the vacuum and it's perhaps not always as reliable as it might be, shall we say.
2: Hmm.
3: And the other thing that that I found interesting was about bald philosophy.
2: Oh, yes, I've not. So I haven't read this at all. You're going to have to
3: okay. explain. You don't have to be bald to do it, it turns out. So that's good. Um, the book is by Simon Critchley and it's a selection of of lots of bite-sized small essays, which were originally published in the New York Times. And his idea is, I think the the, the premise is that um, it's not academic writing, it's philosophy, which is, Without the standard academic protective headgear.
2: Oh, so the writing itself—the writing the itself writing is it's bald. bald. Oh, yeah. I was—I was imagining. I mean, Michel Foucault, basically.
3: Well, I mean, maybe he's probably—he's probably in there, isn't he? Um, so it's without an elaborate scholastic toupee. I see. <laughs> Just in case you were reaching for your elaborate scholastic toupee, this is writing without one. So he, Simon Critchley, apparently went bald at forty and accepted this, and he also strived to go bald with his writing, exposing his thinking in uncovered ways. So he talks about philosophical questions in small I guess bald bite-sized essays
2: right and he, he is he is known for a clear style isn't mm,
3: he yeah yeah exactly and it's um and it just sounds it sounds really interesting and it talks about you know the big questions what do you believe what makes you happy what are philosophers for apparently philosophy kills he wants to have that the, the same kind of message that you have on cigarette packets he thinks should come with <laughs> philosophy you shouldn't do it on your own you have we all have to do it together we're all, and and the big and the big take home uh, which is not a, a new one I don't think which doesn't present it as such it's not giving us the answers just asking the right questions
2: well I have um I have a piece that I want to flag as well then um go ahead just so as not to be left out <laughs> um well I had wanted to have marina Warner on the podcast this week to talk through the book herself because I mean, she she's read it and reviewed it brilliantly so um but she couldn't make it so I'll give it my best but the book is called um the Invention of Sicily: A Mediterranean History by Jamie mckay and it starts. Well, Marina Warner starts out from. She points out how Sicily, you know, is the largest island in the Mediterranean, um, and it used to occupy a central position on the maps. She points to this seventeenth-century vellum portolan, and she says how how the Rhomb lines crisscross between Asia and Africa, the Atlantic and Europe, and converge on the island's many ports. And these are ports which, incidentally, have never been closed. You know, not even during the Crusades. Uh, and no matter how hard one recent Italian politician of the far right, who I shan't name, tried. But, um, but this position has made Sicily a site of struggle, she says, from ancient times to the Second World War when it was battered by the advancing allies. So as Marina explains, this idea of Sicily as a centre, the kind of hub, has long been supplanted by the idea of it as a marginal, dusty, crumbling you know, doomed romance. Uh, even you think sort
3: of, of deep south type thing. Yeah,
2: yeah. You think of Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa's portrayal of, of of the island, the futility of change on the island. It's all
3: fading, and yeah. exactly,
2: it's all faded glory. And Marina Warner has this wonderful phrase um, uh, of the, the chapels and churches as as uh, Miss Havishams. Um, so these stories are you know a major part of the island's image now. Those ones and you know, stories about the mafia and fact and fiction and you know, those are true stories, but I suppose it seems like the, the project of, of Jamie Mackay is to reinvent Sicily. So, not to deny those pasts and those particular strands of the story, but to challenge their dominance, I suppose. So, he kind of tries to recast the negatives and see things in a different light. And he points to the rich history of, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of examples of enlightened governance and living in Sicily. One of them is how a century before the Magna Carta, Roger II proclaimed which doesn't sound very regal, does it somehow, Roger II? But anyway, he, he proclaimed religious tolerance for all faiths.
3: That's just, oh yeah, when I saw that, that's, that's completely extraordinary.
2: Astounding, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Good old in, Roger II. It, good old Roger II. And um, in 1231, the Holy Roman Emperor uh, Frederick II, dubbed Stupor Mundi by his, his friends and the Antichrist of Palermo by his enemies, uh, issued the constitutions of Melfi. And these were laws that included apparently quite far-sighted ecological measures uh, as well as the right to divorce so again pretty you know pretty enlightened for, for the 1200s it just sounds really good
3: let me ask you one thing about sicily yes so because when i when i spent any time there i had quite bad italian but i could understand you know a bit of what was said to me uh let's say further north uh-huh. but by the time i got to sicily i just i couldn't really is that normal
2: um well yeah, i mean if they were speaking to you in 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 dialect then Certainly, and I'd be. Completely maybe they lost. were,
3: but I think maybe they were doing it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't blame them at all.
2: Yes, I'm from near Milan, and I think I would. I would if they spoke to me in dialect,
3: I'd be completely. Upset. That's what I was wondering. Which is
2: which is fitting because it's an island. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: of course. So, it's, so the point is, they can. They've. They've. But, but does everyone speak the dialect? But is it just that they can go into Italian, as it were, in inverted commas, when they want to?
2: Well, the the history of bilingualism in Italy is really, really interesting and far too long to go into on this podcast now. But if you think about it, going down the peninsula, there are something like 32 or 33 different languages and their regional... You know they're, they're proper languages, you, you know. I, I said dialect or dialect, but they are actually minority languages. Um, in the south, I think it's over towards um over in Calabria, they speak Greco, which is basically ancient Greek, really, but still, yeah, most well, not so much. Older people probably still will, and there's probably a revival going on, there always seems to be. But older people will tend to speak their dialect and standard Italian because standard Italian is very, very new, it was only really um, made the national language in the 1860s um, and and most people still didn't speak it. I mean when it, when the Italian army was uh, wandering around in the first world war, uh, troops from Torino met apparently met troops from uh, somewhere in the south and they thought each other was the, the enemy <laughs> it's you know it's an apocryphal story probably but it, you know it gives, it gives you a sense of things if you think so my my grandma speaks three languages well, actually she speaks four because she also speaks. Uh, some English but she speaks Italian Veneto and Friulano and Friulano is, is a mad language see so sorry this was quite a digression um I just thought I just thought <laughs> back to the TLS though yes <laughs> um, there's two other things I just want to point out before we move on uh, to our final segment one is there is a fiery exchange on the letters page this week between Kate Hext and Alan Hollinghurst, He was rather critical of Hex's recent commentary piece on the yes. uh, flirtatious letters between Carl van Vetchen and Ronald Furbank. And it is quite heated.
3: Yes, it is. It I is. look forward
2: to more. It's very, very interesting, very um,
3: spirited. There's no holds barred. I no, would say.
2: exactly. Definitely not. Um, and there's also a new poem by. Uh, John Mole called Texts, uh, which begins, Dostoevsky's Laundry List, Herman Melville's Kippers, the last card forced to played at Whist, Auden's bedroom slippers. So how could you how could you not want to read on Lucy?
3: <laughs> I do, I do want to read on. I have <laughs> read on. Others may as well.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So um, anyway, now though, let's turn to Mario Livrero, the Uruguayan master of the miraculous mundane, but a master who probably not many of us have heard of. A final work, The Luminous Novel, translated into English by Annie McDermott, has not long been published. It's a museum of unfinished stories, all provisional, never definitive, capping off a lifetime spent trying to write his way out of the clutter of existence. Sound cheery? Well, Michael Kerrigan is here to tell us more. Hello, Michael. Hello. Um, The book under review, The Luminous Novel, is, uh, on the surface at least, uh, a pretty tough sell, isn't it?
5: It is, yes. I mean... um... Annie McDermott, as you said, a translator described it as uh, "empty to the brim," and while that's a you know very neat summary, it's well, it's it's actually perfect, but it, it just gives an impression of um, you know. Empty paradox, you know, and, and 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 there is much more to it than that. It's it's uh, it, it's it's extremely engaging read. It's it's great fun, uh, although it's true that nothing much really happens, and he never really gets to the novel that he's supposed to be writing.
2: Um, and so, I mean, the, the bulk of the novel is a, a prologue. You you describe so there's this long prologue, and the whole thing is you describe it as carefully curated tedium. So, what are its kind of constituent items? You know, what details do we see? It just gives us a sense of. Of what it's like to read it.
5: Well, it's um, it's 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 very much the you know the banalities of everyday. He wrestles with a new air conditioning system, and he he goes to the supermarket and quarrels with the you know the lady on the checkout, and he uh he buys more trashy detective novels which he devours, and um, he watches a dead pigeon decomposing on a flat roof underneath his bedroom window, and. Um, puzzles about it and uh, you know how, how how it died and you know what happened and what's going to happen next and and so forth it, it reminds me a little bit of um, Tristram Shandy where he says uh, you know uh six months in and I you know was it 200 pages in I still haven't been born and um, <laughs> and, and and actually I, I I don't think he knew he was born because um uh livero goes uh much further and with, with you know by you know saying much less.
3: And is it funny because the way you're describing it it, it I mean it sounds it either sounds actually very boring which I think you think it isn't um but, it, but it's actually very funny he doesn't mind poking fun at himself does he and saying I spent a long time watching a decomposing pigeon.
5: Not at all I mean it, it, it is funny it's self-deprecating humour uh, I mean in English terms it's a, a little bit uh pooter it's it's a little bit H. G. Wells's history of Mr. Polly. I mean, think of these kind of, you know, anti-heroes of of of, of everyday, you know, quietness and so forth. So, so it's it's not unprecedented that there should be humor in that. But at the same time, uh, there's this sort of a uh, almost gravity-defying sense of uh, him fashioning a, such a huge novel out of this. And 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 there's a sense that he has and we 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 have, and in fact, Annie McDermott in a afterwards says uh you know she had this sense of of hurrying and scurrying and and, and, and trying to get somewhere and not getting somewhere and, and it's a bit like trying to climb out of a sandpit. and um you know it is in that sense absurd so you know we are kind of implicated in that
2: there's a passive quality you describe um to the worker kind of well an illusion of passivity i suppose um you say it's the reader who does who does the work here
5: yeah um i think he's um He's trying to write without writing and i think he tapped into a a thought that you know again many writers have have had before that that when when the um writing has um ach- achieves liftoff it sort of leaves the writer behind in some way and you know you can go back to dr johnson saying you know go through what you've written if you find a passage that seems particularly pleasing to you strike it out uh, because the you know in the end whilst on the one hand the writer wants the the writing to sing and the and and the text to to achieve liftoff. You know, I think in in his own way, um, Liveo is um engaged trying to nail nail that same thing, you know
2: And it was published posthumously this uh, this book. So I'm wondering wait, where does it sit in the in the context of his work? well, actually perhaps before you answer that question, perhaps you could just run us through what what did come before the luminous novel. you know how did Liveo make? His name. You mentioned an involuntary trilogy, which is a, an excellent, an excellent term.
5: And, and I think quite a revealing one. Again, because it, it, it's sort of disowning any sense of authorial will, uh, which is obviously, in one sense, disingenuous, but in another sense, it's it, it's obviously true for him. Uh, for someone who only died in two thousand and four, a surprising amount doesn't really seem to be known about him. He was quite secretive. He didn't really give many interviews. Uh, he was known for for writing short squibs and you know bits of sci fi stories, that kind of thing. Yeah. There's a, a gap in of of of, of sort of rye comedies and so forth in the in in, in, the, eight, in, in the late eighties. I should perhaps say that that of course, uh, 1973 to 1985, uh, Uruguay was under military dictatorship, and that was quite a good time for a writer to be quite guarded. He did. Go and live in Argentina for a few years. Uh, no one really knows why during that period. And uh, in the nineties, he starts doing this thing with the, with the the empty empty words, the empty discourse uh, novel, uh, where he's trying to uh, access himself via his handwriting, and 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 and, and that's a, a sort of strange, sort of like a, a kind of surrealistic experiment of automatic writing. But he, he's trying to um, uh explore his inner self by just seeing how he handwrites
2: oh by by sort of really looking at the the shape that his letters take on the page and that sort of thing using that as a, a right wow
5: literally and and of course it, it doesn't um really yield uh reports that you and I would recognize as revelation but but it it um, you know we see it as um it's a way of, of of excluding context and of uh rather than having the 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 Kafka-esque, uh you know Sort of mysterious, uh, absurd context that that the, the books of the first trilogy has had, and and that uh, didn't quite get him where he wanted to go. Uh, he's trying to do it now by by you know exploring himself from the outside in. You know, how do I know what I am till I see not just what I write but how I write? And of course, the the problem is that what I write is is uh, is potentially misleading. Back to the thing of you know, oh dear, yes, the novel tells a story. Once you sort of, um, you know. Once a novelist creates a world, that world produces, you know, it becomes a centre of gravity within the work, if you like, and uh, you know that's not what he wants.
3: He sounds like someone from, um, I mean, I was almost going to say it's silly to say Borges because I don't mean just because he's South American; he sounds a bit like that. But when you say short fiction, and you know, he's he's trying to change himself via his handwriting and starts off doing, do you know, and and he's a secret secretive figure. He, he, I mean, it sounds like almost like a self-conscious construct from a novel.
5: Yeah, and and I think you know it's not easy to find a lot of material he wrote, and and I, I was intrigued by the interest. You know, for obvious reasons, uh, Borges would be an obvious uh, person to have influenced him. Uh, he certainly takes you know Latin American literature back to that sort of minimalism and so forth. After most of us in the outside world, uh, we think of Latin America and and we think of Garcia Marquez, and we think of these exotic, essentially kind of rainforest environments with beautiful scarlet flowers and parakeets and incredible butterflies and so forth. And um, I think, well, first of all, uh, for kind of understandable reasons, I think Latin American novelists, you know, eventually kind of started to kick against that anyway. But also I think um, their priorities were different, and um, I think that um, they saw Virginia Woolf as, as a kind of, no question a list you know world writer and um uh i which which i do too and and, and but I, I don't think her status is so secure in in an english-speaking world uh, uh but i think this thing of, of trying to kind of you know the the traffic the traffic jam with the kind of red, red buses and it's all like beads in a, a string or you know that kind of thing it's it this incredible sense of of, of a visual world and so forth uh you know that Stop being what it was about, if you like. And um I, I think um it, it was you know a, a a retreat within and and and, and again that's why I wanted to talk in my review about you know the relationship with St. Teresa. Well
2: what, what is that relationship with Saint Teresa then? Because she she sort of is is a kind of talisman for him.
5: That's right. I mean yeah okay the relationship is with St. Teresa is pivotal in, in my review. It's not pivotal in in his novel, but it is significant. And I think it is really the the reasons why. I mean, I think that, you know, she's a terribly charismatic figure for us now. And um the thing about her is that I to, to me that that reminds me of of, of Livero is that 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 she was constantly trying to push you against the grain of, of 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 writing and 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 she you know she, she didn't want to be seen as um Going out into the world and so forth, the way George Eliot saw her, she 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 wanted to to ascend within herself. And I'm not particularly saying that the is. I don't think he's particularly a religious writer, um, but I think he's uh, latched onto that sense that that you know that that all the kind of residue that that sort of adheres to language and story and imagery and all the things that make fiction generally a lot of the things that we go to fiction for most of the time in furnace um uh but but all those things are, are 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 things that 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 are sort of cluttering um you know his path to find this um whatever it is that is that isn't essence but kind of sounds rather like it
2: yeah and it's it's true as well that i mean one of the other the, the um you know if there's anything more anything beyond that that similarity in, in terms of how uh Saint Teresa found it hard to to create and, and to write in the same way as Liberero does. There's also in the in 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 terms of the religious aspect of it. There's also that thing that you you get quite often. I'm thinking about um, Gonzalo Tavares, the um, portuguese writer uh, he's been keeping a plague diary for um for the past um well 18 months or however long it's been a decade Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and um and and there is something that happens i think it sounds sort of similar to livrero in that it's your if you're almost listing these you know small observations of 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 day-to-day life and you read them and after a while there does seem to be some almost kind of hymnic quality to them they 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 have a cumulative effect on you they speak to each other and develop a kind of a a mood that is somehow sort of akin to a religious experience if that's not I I don't mean to make that sound grand but it's just that that idea of an overall effect that that can come out of that kind of writing
5: no absolutely I I mean I don't think anyone reads a, a you know a 500 plus page novel for Self-deprecating humor. I mean, it 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 it's quasi-religious in its ambition and and, and scale. I think for sure. And
3: um, there's another um, comparison you make, um, but not quite a saint, um, but a, a hero, shall we say, of autofiction of Karl Ove That it's it's a sort of comparison you make with him, isn't it?
5: Yeah. I mean, uh, um, I kind of uh, perhaps a bit prejudiced. I, I kind of, to me, he he doesn't come out quite so well from a comparison. But that—that's probably a matter of you know uh, of, of 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 taste. I, I feel he's uh, his his is a more self-consciously heroic struggle, and um, I find Le Vero, um his 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 self self-deprecation is is not just a sort of philosophical mystic thing. It, it is also it's engaging. We 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 most of us like self-deprecating people more than we like people who big themselves up, and you know that's not advanced literary criticism. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's just true um so so would you say um just on a final note would you say um that livrero is an important figure then i mean there's been there's been something of a lag between the original publications and their anglophone version so i'm wondering you know do you think with the help now of of, of his translator annie mcdermott who you say has done a, a wonderful job here is he starting to be appreciated as important outside of latin american letters
5: yeah i think so um um I mean Annie McDermott has not just done a, a bang up job here. She's she's been a I think a champion for him over a number of years now. And 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 that's making a mark on our on culture just by doing that, you know, if, if she didn't do anything else. But I think that um yeah, I th- I, th- I think we've been waiting to read something like this. Yeah.
2: Well, Michael Kerrigan, thank you very much for well, certainly for introducing him to me. Um, as I say, I had not heard of him and um and I'm grateful. So thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to michael kerrigan and nick groom thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by ben mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye
0: flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans